front, we saved the front corner. I didn't search for anything. The front corner. That's what I'm at. Ba- trying to be a back row Baptist over there. Come on up. Um, last week, we ended with this memory verse. It's a simple one. Jeremiah 10.6, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Now, why would we affirm that God is great and that his name is great in the context of what we've been learning? What's so great about God anyway? Imminent and transcendent God. Very good. Yeah. If as man is, God once was, then his name wouldn't be too great, would it? But if God is categorically different than us as creator and all we being his creatures, then yes, certainly God is absolutely great. We've been studying the incommunicable attributes of God the last three weeks. Who can tell me what incommunicable means? Incommunicable. Six syllables. Incommunicable. What does it mean? Non-transferable. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Incommunicable. God doesn't share them with another. Now, um, there are some aspects, for instance, life, that comes from God being eternal, right? God can grant eternal life because he himself is eternal. But we will never, ever, ever be eternal beings, will we? Because we had a starting point. So now we can say we have eternal life and we don't have an ending point and we can affirm that. But eternal is both ends of that. And so there's an aspect where we can share, but, um, but not thoroughly. So just a reminder, there are incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. Incommunicable attributes are those that God does not share with another. Incommunicable attributes are those that God allows those made in his image to replicate to some degree. Now, we not only replicate them, we can experience them. Um, we can experience, you can see on your sheet there what we're going to be looking at. We can experience the peace of God. We can experience the love of God, all of that. And then we can also replicate them as God's uh, elect, as those who have been saved. So the incommunicable attributes we discussed are these here. Simplicity, transcendence, eternality, eminence, immutability, and the three big omnis. We cannot replicate any of those. We're locked in as finite creatures. We cannot replicate omnipotence. <laughs> Maybe to the ants on the anthill we can, but not truly. Okay? Now, as far as communicable attributes go, you have them there on your sheet. We're going to look at love, grace, mercy, justice, humility, wisdom, peace, and jealousy, that's an interesting one. Throw a curveball in at the end. Um, we'll discuss that, okay? That's where we're going with today's study. Love, agape. Agape, we know about that word, don't we? What do we know about the word agape? Besides it, it's translated to mean love. <laughs> um, what else can we say about agape? Kind of God, the kind of love that God has towards us. Mm-hmm. We usually don't experience that kind of a God love, it seems like. I mean, it's, that's yeah, yeah. So we can say about God's love, as we start to describe it, um, that it's sacrificial, right? God's love is sacrificial. That's what's at the heart of agape love, is sacrifice. Because where do we see agape love most clearly? On the cross. 
On the cross, very good. The ultimate sacrifice that God would take on human flesh and give that life for us. Sacrificial. Okay, let's throw out some other words before we look at some texts. What are some other things that come to mind about God's love that could define God's love? Right on cue. Look at that. Unconditional. God's love is unconditional. He lavishes his love on us. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 1 John chapter 3. Never ending. Hey, never ending. Look at that. Eternal. Very good. You guys are just coming right along. Eternal love. How about this word? Pursuant. Someone want to put meat on those bones for me? Pursuant. What does that mean? Well, it's primary from him. We do not pursue him. He pursues us. Can you give me a verse? Say in 1 John, maybe go to 1 John 4. Why do we love? We do not love him. There you go. No, that's fine. That's very good. We love because He first loved us. He pursued us. He interrupted our lives. We love because He first loved us. Can we say immeasurable too? What do, we, what do we have in Ephesians? That you might know the height? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, all those things. Can you can you take a measuring rod out and tell me how high God's love is, how wide it is? Hmm. Immeasurable. We could say completely good, can't we? Can you say that of anyone else's love in all the universe? Can't say completely good, can we? Because we tend to throw in a little bit of selfishness. We tend to throw in a little bit of pride. We tend to throw in a little bit of bad stuff. But God's love is completely good. And it's shared. God's love is shared. Not only is it shared to us as his creatures, but God, who, who was God loving before creatures existed? Each other. The yeah. Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling in glory together. There was shared love in the Trinity for all eternity. Isn't that amazing? Any other adjectives we want to throw on that? Or we pretty much do a good job on that one so far. All right. All right. Well, I gave you the verses. Isn't this nice? I printed out the verses for you on the paper. Uh, I was just being extra nice to you. So now you have to return the favor and be extra nice by volunteering to read these passages. So who's got Deuteronomy 7? Okay, Rex. 1 Corinthians 13. Boy, that's relevant. Melissa's got that one. And Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, Mr. Bowman. Okay, Deuteronomy 7, 1 Corinthians 13, and Ephesians chapter 3. Deuteronomy 7 is in the context, of course, of Israel. The Lord speaking to Israel. He set his love on that nation in the Old Covenant. And I just love, I love these passages uh, where he's talking to Israel. Go ahead when you got it, Rex. You got it, 7. The Lord did not set his affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your 
forefathers that he brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Wow. So God didn't set his affections on you because you brought anything to the table. But the answer, uh, I think it might have been in verse 8. Why did God set his affections on them? Well, that's because he loved them. That's it. Completely good. Unconditional. Pursuant. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. 8a. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. All right, now... I'm going to ask you a really basic question. I don't want you to think too hard and give me some philosophical answer. I want you to think like a simpleton. I know it's hard for you guys because your minds are usually way up there in the clouds, but bring it down, okay? Why did Paul write those things to the Corinthians? Why did he describe love to them that way? What was his purpose? They weren't behaving that way very much at all at the Okay. And so what did he want? There you go. So it's like they can, right? He wasn't describing love to them just for the sake of here's what you're not doing and well, here's what love really is. This is hopeless, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. He was describing it to them because these are communicable attributes of God. God is love. Love comes from God. Here's what it looks like. Now you as believers who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, go emulate God. Imitate Christ. Live like God would have you to live. Okay? That's, I want us to keep that in mind. These are communicable attributes. These are things that we can replicate to a degree as those who are in his image who have been saved. In Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. You may be able to comprehend that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you... Being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the width and length, the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow, that'll preach. We can camp out on that for a few days and discuss it. Um, It starts with us being rooted and grounded in love as God's church. So we're able to do that. We are able to be rooted and grounded in this love, not world's definition of love, not emotions, but this love, God's love. And as we do that together, we are able to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Wow. We can have knowledge that surpasses knowledge. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Any other thoughts on love? Okay. Keep it moving. Grace. It's the word charis in Greek. Um, the word charity comes from that Greek word. And if you're using a King James Bible, the word for love gets translated as charity quite a bit. But what can we say about God's grace? Because remember, these are attributes of God. 
So we're not talking about just generally speaking, however we want to define it. We want to think about how God is gracious. And uh, what, what are some adjectives we could throw on God's grace there? Free. 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 Good. Yes. Grace is free. Unmerited. Unmerited. Yeah, because if it costs something, whether it's else, then grace ceases to be grace. That's the argument of the New Testament. Good. Yes. Did not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift. Says it right there in the text. How about available? Is God's grace sometimes kept from us? <laughs> oh, isn't that an amazing thought? 24-7, 365, God's grace is available. Again, unconditional, right? Uh, that's what we were just saying. Abundant. So it's unmerited, unearned, and it's also abundant. Are we getting to a point in world history where God's running low on grace? <laughs> it's that overflowing cup that never ceases to be full, abundant, ever-present, needed. God's grace is needed, isn't it? Where would we be without it? Hopeless, just like the rest of the world. Here's a word for you. This will come up in the, uh, the sermon too. Salvific. Salvific. That means that there's a saving quality to God's grace. So when God pours out his grace in a person's life, that's how a person is saved, isn't it? Now, can we be saved apart from grace? No, obviously not. And when grace comes, there's a saving quality to it. And inclusive, inclusive. What people in the world are allowed to access God's grace? Those who give it to. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And how about every tribe and tongue and nation, right? Because when we get to heaven, those who have been saved by grace, they're going to be they're going to be representatives from every corner of the earth. There. Okay. Any other thoughts on the qualities of God's grace? The adjectives we could use. Okay, well, let's start all together in 1 Samuel 1. Let's all go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I love this past part of this book. And maybe we could have someone read verses 1 through 10 and someone do verses 11 through 20. You want to do that? Who could take 1 to 10? Now, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Jerry Carroll and Jerry Bowman want to get 11 through 20. You might have some interesting vocabulary words for yours there, uh, <laughs> Mr. Carroll. <laughs> so if you just say it with confidence and go fast, we're all going to think you know what you're talking about. So <laughs> First Samuel 1, 1 to 10. Go ahead. Now there was a certain man from Rabbin-Sabina. There you go. From the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elohim, and the son of Jehovah, the son of Ehud, the son of Tohah, the son of Zubah, and Ephraim. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Hannah. And Hannah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Elah, Obadiah, and Penas were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that 
in the sacrifice he would now give portions to Mina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, and she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Anna, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking and shouting. Now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat at the doorpost of the temple of God. She greatly distressed, prayed to God, to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall not, shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. <laughs> and Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and before their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Anna, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time that Hannah had conceived, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Okay. Now, does that story, does that narrative belong in a conversation about grace? Yes. Why? Okay, well that means every story belongs in a conversation about grace. But why in particular? How is God's grace on display here? Because it states that God has closed her womb. And God used grace because of her desire to love God and what she would commit herself. That God showed grace to give her a son. Now, I agree, and what, but what gets baked into that, maybe what's underlying that that we don't really see is that we're saying she didn't deserve a child. 
Because if she deserved it, then this wouldn't be grace, right? And his grace is extremely exposed by his treatment of Benina. Mm-hmm. She was loaded with sons and daughters. She didn't deserve them either, and she behaved like she didn't In fact, I think all the people in that story were breathing, weren't they? And that breath in their lungs, I, do they deserve that? And any experience of joy and happiness and anything in life. Okay, so that's kind of the approach we have to take when we think of how God's grace is seen in the world. And I know I gave you this word here, the salvific word. Um, it is salvific at times, but there's something called common grace too. And we're going to look at that in Matthew 5. If you want to go ahead and turn over to Matthew 5, 45. Common grace, meaning... Everybody in the world who is alive and experiencing any type of goodness in life, that's God showing His grace, displaying His grace, isn't it? Yes, and that's what Jesus is going to talk about here in Matthew 5. And let's go ahead and read 44, 44 and 45, both verses. Someone read those two verses? Okay. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All right. Common grace. It wouldn't be common if God only took care of Christian farmers, right? If, you know, if you had an aerial view and there were clouds blocking out all the plots of land besides the Christian farm and that's where the sun would shine (laughs) and that's where the rain would fall. And all the uh, non-Christian farmers, you know, they couldn't grow anything because they couldn't get any sun or any rain. But God is showing kindness to the whole world by allowing them to create, by allowing them to uh, work and earn a living and have a family and all that stuff. That's God's common grace. And then, of course, specifically, there is God's saving grace. Who can recite Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? It's an Awana verse. It's a good childhood verse. You have been saved through faith, and that out of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works. Very good. It is by grace that we are saved. So it's not only by grace that we have children and raise a family and have crops, though that all is by grace. It's also how we're saved, by grace. Okay? It is interesting that at times he does differentiate, as in during the plagues, the first ones were applied to Israel, and the last ones he gave special grace. Mm-hmm. Grace upon grace. <laughs> so now we're thinking about this attribute of God as being communicable, one that we can emulate. What are some ways that we might fail at imitating God and being gracious? That might be the easiest for us to think of, or the ways that we mess it up. Mm-hmm. Our grace isn't always unconditional, is it? It can be very targeted. We might require people to earn it. Um, I want to try us to get something. <laughs> yeah. And exclusive too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, instead of inclusive, exclusive. Well, don't show grace to those people because of X, Y, Z. Now, of course, there is a degree to which we're never going to have perfect grace in our lives. We're all fallen creatures, aren't we? But 
we also are redeemed and have the Spirit of God, don't we? And so we need to be challenged in these ways. We're never going to have infinite, abundant, ever-present grace. But we can certainly have uh, grace that transcends anything the world has to offer. We should, as Christians. Okay, so be challenged by God's grace and the way that you show grace. How are we doing? Doing okay. Mercy, Elias, Elias. There was a coffee house in Kansas City called Elias Coffee, Christian coffee place. Um, means mercy. Mercy, mercy. God's mercy is, how about this, undeserved. Would we agree? <laughs> Again, like grace, if you have to earn it, well, then it's no longer mercy. Then it's just a transaction. But mercy is something else. His mercy is righteous. Righteous mercy. He never lets someone off the hook um, in a way that is unrighteous. But his mercy is always something that flows out of his righteousness. He always maintains his righteousness when he shows mercy. His mercy is astounding. We sing about this, don't we? God's mercy. And we, we ask for it, and when we receive it, we're just astounded. Constant. Constant mercy. If you are in touch with your sin and you're in touch with the, the just nature of God, you know that every time you sin, God has full right to squash you and to take you, to take you out of this world, right? But every time he doesn't, it's a display of his mercy. Long-suffering, there's a good word. Long-suffering. God is patient, God is kind, his mercy is long-suffering. Purposeful. He's never merciful for the sake of, you know, just, he felt like being merciful today. He's got a purpose in it. At salvation, it's that it would lead us to the cross, that we would initially be saved. And as believers, he brings us back to the cross. And as believers, he teaches us things through his mercy. He humbles us with his mercy, doesn't he? Praise inspiring. And any other thoughts we might have on God's mercy? God's mercy. New every morning and Mm-hmm. Very good. Yes, we, I don't have that one on there, but very good. Yeah, that's in uh, Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. God's mercies are new each morning. 323, I believe. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, let's look at some passages here. 2 Samuel 24. Who wants to grab 2 Samuel 24, 13 to 14? Okay. Psalm 23, the funeral song. <laughs> psalm 23, who would like to read that whole psalm? I think it's eight verses. Who's got it? Travis seems like a guy who should read Psalm 23. And uh, Luke 6, this is a challenging passage here. Luke 6, 35 to 36, Rex. Okay, that'll really bring home the communicable aspect of that. I don't remember what the Second Samuel one is, so uh, go ahead and teach us all there, uh, Sandra. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall seven years of family come to you in your land? Is that right? Okay. Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of the man. Hmm. 
That's a cool passage. So David, upon hearing some, some bad things, he just is greatly distressed. And what's his first instinct, at least in this moment? We know that David wasn't perfect in this, but in this moment, his first instinct wasn't to go get counsel from man. His first instinct wasn't to go just, uh, what's a good word, uh, mope? To go mope and just go sit in a cave and just, you know, pout. But his thought is, because he's in great distress, verse 14, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord. And why? For his mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hand of man. That's a good prayer. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Hmm. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Wow. Goodness and loving kindness. You think that includes mercy? His mercy will follow us how long? All the days. That's a promise. That's a good promise. Okay, now Rex, this is kind of starting out like the last passage you read in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, love your enemies. He's going to say it again. Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. There's the standard. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The Christian can read this and we can recognize, well, the whole just as thing, we're always going to fall short. But what is our goal? To emulate God, to imitate God. We can know that theologically we're always going to have sinful nature. There are always going to be moments where we fall and sin. We give into temptation. But we need to be provoked by these words of our Savior, don't we? To be merciful, just as our Father's merciful. And I love that at the end of verse 35. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. There's another thing we could try to do, huh? <laughs> Other thoughts on mercy? I like to tell people without mercy we'd never know his grace. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, mercy humbles us and grace picks us up. It's good stuff. Justice. Chrysis is the word in Greek. Chrysis. You know a guy named Chris, you can say, hey, I think your name might have something to do with justice. And he'll say, why are you talking to me? <laughs> God's justice. What can we say about God's justice? Hmm. Perfectly fair. How about that? I added a couple syllables. Perfectly fair. Does God ever mess up in a judgment call? <laughs> no. Every judgment of God is perfectly, perfectly fair. What else? Think of this both from the believer's side and the non-believer's side. It's, I can't think of like a one word, but he promises it. Like we shouldn't take vengeance and things like that because it is, it's going. You could say it's inescapable. 
That's right. It's going to happen. It's for sure. It's certain. What else? About God's justice. Vengeance is mine, the Lord. Yes, that's right. It belongs to him. Um, ultimately. Now, there are aspects in which we better seek to uh, establish God's justice here on earth. And right now, that's a really hot-button issue in the church. The social justice stuff. Uh, how far do we take, you know, a trying to create justice here, but we do know it's a command. Micah 6, 8. What does God require of you but to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? God's justice is the standard, isn't it? If we're trying, and this is the problem with the social justice movement that people like us might have with with that movement is, well, you're employing standards that God doesn't employ, that God doesn't give us. A lot of it is socialistic and even communistic ideals. Consistent. Consistent. God doesn't make inconsistent judgments. God is the most consistent being. Will any stones be left unturned at Judgment Day? So we could say comprehensive, couldn't we? Comprehensive judgment. Should be frightening for those who don't have grace and mercy. Exercised sovereignly. God is the only sovereign and he exercises his justice sovereignly. And any other thoughts on adjectives for justice? Sum it up okay? Well, I read to you Micah 6.8. Let's look at Joshua 20 verses 1 through 6. Let's just all go there. Joshua chapter 20, the sixth book of your Bible. Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. I'll I'll read this one, I think. Joshua 20, starting at verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city uh, or yeah, to, they shall take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now, if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city into his own house, to the city from which he fled. All right. What can we learn about God's justice from a passage like that? Instruction from his law. It does find differentiation. It says it's perfect. Hmm. Yeah, it's fair. He cares about the small details. Yeah. Such yeah. As you move. 
pretty comprehensive there, isn't it? Um, for an instance such as that. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't we glad that we don't have to deal with the, the situation like that? Uh, yeah. There are certainly applications we can make from areas of the law, but this is one of those that we don't really have to deal with directly very often. That's good. Um, Matthew 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Great verse. And in Matthew 23, 23, the words of Jesus. So again, we're thinking about God being all these things, right? Um, perfectly enacting justice in every way that he does it. He's setting the standard. He's exercising it sovereignly. We see it uh, you know, played out in Israel. But then Israel gets rebuked. Matthew 23, 23, who would read that? Go ahead, Jerry. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. All right. So how did Israel get this all twisted up in their history? <coughs> this idea that they were to emulate God in their justice. Well, it costs something to be just. At the very least, it costs us time and mental thought and work. And so it's easier to let things slide. And mm -hmm. There's a lot of relationship capital that gets put on the chopping block, too, with justice. Yeah. And in Israel, it became easier just to do ritualistic things, outward things. Taking a tenth of your spices. Um, but they weren't doing the, the hard work of actually emulating God. Hmm. It kind of come to a point where they thought poor people didn't deserve justice, that God was punishing them. Mm. And they blamed and favored the rich. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, unconditional grace and mercy, that was really lost, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, don't show them grace or mercy, they deserve it. Yeah. We need to be more in touch with what we deserve. Any other thoughts on justice? Well, we, our, as you could say, our judgments are so skewed because, after all, if you're rich, it's because God loves you and is blessing you. Mm -hmm. If you're not, well, you're getting what you deserve. Yeah. And we can say that when we're rich. Hmm. It's a little harder to say that. Very true. Yeah. Perspective. All right, humility. Who wants to pronounce that Greek word for us? <laughs> All right. The word for humility is tapen afrasune. Tape afrasune. There you go. Yeah, well, those are Greek letters. God's humility. 
Maybe the first thing we could say about it is that it's surprising, huh? <laughs> that God would have humility? Well, that is shocking. Scandalous. Also glorious, though, huh? Surprising and glorious. God has the most glorious humility that exists. <laughs> of course, exemplary, but you could use that for all of these, couldn't you? Since these are ones we're supposed to imitate. Uh, exemplary. Conducive. What did I mean when I typed conducive in there? Maybe I was just putting a word in there that would make Travis uh, impressed here. Conducive. What is conducive? What was I thinking? Is it conducive? His humility was conducive to our salvation? Yeah, perhaps. Maybe that's what that was what I was thinking. Um, hmm. Maybe we'll come back around to that one after reading the passages. <laughs> Seen in Christ. And we'll get to that in Philippians. Counterintuitive. And that's why it's surprising, right? Because you think of, well, God doesn't, God's not humble. He doesn't need to be humble. He's got all power. He is not owed, um, or he doesn't owe anything to anybody. He, uh, there he is, just the all-powerful creator of the universe and glory. Why would he ever be humble? We wouldn't, right, if that was us? <laughs> well, that doesn't make much sense to us, but that's the way it is. Surprising, glorious, amazing. Okay, well, let's look at some passages about this. This is good stuff. This is really good stuff. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Good verses to memorize, very important verses. Who's got it? I do. Okay. And God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them roll over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. How does that display humility on God's part? Turn over his creation to critters. (laughs) And to set his image on those. Who are we to share the image of God? To have that on us. To have that authority and responsibility of stewarding the earth. Wow. Wow. That God would do that um, is an amazing thought. (laughs) Luke 2.52, this is a passage that might cause you some problems one day if you're talking to someone who believes something heretical. But let's uh, look at this. This is talking about Jesus when he was young, okay? This isn't Jesus as a 30-year-old man. This is Jesus younger. Luke 2.52, someone read that for us. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. All right. So, how does this display the humility of God? Grow up in 
the body of a man. Yeah. He's God, but he chose to do that. Yeah. Who is Jesus? God. Did okay. Jesus wear a diaper? Yes. Who is Jesus? Did he slobber all over himself and have to learn how to feed himself mm-hmm. in the flesh? Mm-hmm. Who is Jesus? Jesus. <laughs> Did he have to learn how to walk? Did he have to be carried around by one of his creatures? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty humble, huh? Yeah, that's right. So that's where the song comes Yes, yes. Allow him to be subject to his own God. Yeah, an amazing thought. I mean, we have a hard enough time as humans as we get older letting our children take care of us. Imagine this. And we're going to find out that not only as a little one was he carried around and taught things, But in Philippians 2, we learn that he allowed himself to be nailed to a tree that he made. Philippians chapter 2. Yeah, 5 through 8. Go ahead. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death. All right, so let's look at verse 5. And there's a word there, there's a past tense be verb, the word was. It says, this attitude in yourself which was in Christ Jesus. Well, that's not incorrect. But let it, uh, let's define it. Let's say was based on the context of the verses that follow. When, when did this attitude exist in Christ Jesus? The attitude that's being spoken of in verse 5. <laughs> okay, all right, well... It had to be before his incarnation at least, right? In the context of this. He had this attitude before he took on flesh. He was existing before he came in human flesh. Because it says in verse 6, past tense, he existed in what form? Very God himself. And he did not, again, past tense, did not regard. When was this? That he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It was before he took on flesh, right? What are the motivating factors here for him coming in the flesh? It's humility. Humility. When did he humble himself? Well, it was happening before he ever took on flesh. He emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And then, as a man in the flesh, did his humility stop? No, verse 8, as he was there being found in appearance as a man, he continually humbled himself. He humbled himself all the way to the cross, being obedient to the point of death. 
Humility caused the incarnation. Humility caused his special atonement on the cross. The humility of God is the driving factor in Jesus coming to earth and dying the death that we deserve. Amazing. That's worth singing about, huh? Amazing, amazing. And we haven't gotten into the Trinity. That's the next part after we finish the communicable attributes here. We're going to talk about the Trinity. And, uh, but it seems like you guys are doing okay so far on that. No one is uh, you know, claiming that Jesus wasn't God, so that's good. <laughs> We'd have issues if that were the case. But, uh, but yeah, we're, we'll get into the details of that. Not the next lesson, but the one after we'll start getting into. I think we're going to stop here for today. Any thoughts or questions on humility or the others? Absolutely. Yeah, did these attributes of God develop over time? Yeah, here's something to also blow your mind. They've been 100% perfect for all eternity. Because they are part and parcel. I shouldn't say part and parcel because God is simple and doesn't have parts. They are intrinsic to God's nature. So as long as there's been God, there's been perfect humility. Which is forever. From everlasting to everlasting. And imitating him, humility informs the others that we've looked at today. Like, if we aren't humble, it skews love, grace, mercy, and justice. If we are humble, it informs them. Yes, and let's bring it back to the communicable side of this that we are to imitate. What's the very first few words there, verse 5 of Philippians 2? What does it say? Have, have this attitude. You all have this attitude. Not an option. Yeah. See the beauty of Christ's humility? That's the attitude you need to grab hold on to right now as Christians in the church. Good stuff, huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, um, we've got a few minutes here.